This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, uh, reporting from ACR 2020. And I'm going to talk to you about a study um, by presented by Dr. Curtis um, on Saturday in plenary session two. This is abstract number 939. Um, and this was the seam or a trial. So this was a study of rheumatoid arthritis patients in remission um, who were on combination therapy with etanercept and metotrexate. It was a double blind randomized controlled trial. 253 patients um, included in the study. So at the start of the study, all of these patients were in remission on combination therapy with both etanercept and metotrexate. And they were then randomized into three different arms. Uh, one arm continued combination therapy with etanercept and metotrexate. Second arm had their metotrexate stopped, so they just continued etanercept. And the third arm had their etanercept stopped, so they just continued metotrexate as monotherapy. And the authors assessed these patients after 48 weeks. They used the ESTI, the Simplified Disease Activity Index, to do this. And what they found was that patients in combination therapy arm, 52.9% of those were in remission at week 48. In the etanercept arm, monotherapy arm, 49.5% of patients were in remission at 48 weeks and no significant difference between those uh, two groups statistically. And in the metatrexate monotherapy arm, 28.7% of patients were in remission. And that was statistically significantly less patients in remission in, on metatrexate monotherapy. There was also um, a shorter time to disease worsening in patients who were treated with metatrexate monotherapy. In those patients who did um, relapse um, and had a flare of their rheumatoid arthritis, they re-entered remission um, for the majority when treatments were reinstituted. So this, for different groups, this was between 71 and 80%. Um, but again, not all patients re-entered remission um, and that's something to be borne in mind. Most of those who weren't in remission had low disease activity, but some of them uh, continued to have higher disease activity. So it would seem from this data that uh, perhaps it's better to withdraw metatrexate denatanercept um, in patients who are in remission. And it would seem that withdrawing the metatrexate and leaving patients on a tanercept monotherapy um, does not seem to significantly worsen outcomes. And there's a couple of caveats to this. It's, it's only 48 weeks. We don't know what happens in the longer term. Metatrexate is significantly cheaper than a tanercept. Um, so there are cost implications um, to continuing the etanercept while stopping the metatrexate. And we don't know if this is true for other biologic agents and particularly other TNF inhibitors. Uh, so etanercept doesn't typically uh, cause the formation of neutralizing antibodies, whereas some of the other TNF inhibitors do. And metatrexate may potentially prevent that from happening. Um, so theoretically, um, there may be more of an advantage continue, continuing metatrexate in those patients. Uh, thank you very much. Um, follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. Uh, tune into Room Now for more updates from ACR 2020. Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. All right, another abstract from ACR 2020 Convergence Meeting. So 
you really need to tell your patients to walk. It's not just for the benefits of exercise, but actually it could improve sleep. Abstract 0134, it's a pilot study exploring whether or not walking can improve your sleep. So what they did was they took 101 patients and they randomized them to either walking two to five times a week. And the goal is about 28 sessions over a period of eight weeks with one session a week that's supervised. So I know that some of you may not wanna walk with your patients, but this is actually maybe assigning somebody like a family member to walk with them just to give a motive. Now, the other group was actually just given general exercise. Like, you know what? You would do really good exercising every day. This is gonna help your joints and overall outlook in life. You know, what we've been giving to our patients. So at the end of the study, what they had was um, patients fill out their sleep quality diary, okay? And sleep duration during this time. And not surprisingly, the group who had walked had improvements in both sleep duration and sleep quality compared to those who were just given general advice. And the amount of sleep that had improved, 1.65 hours. Imagine what you can do if you got 1.65 more hours of sleep every night. So put down your pen and don't write any more prescriptions for sleep aids. This is something that you can encourage the patients to do because it's not good just for their overall health, but it helps with sleep as well. Dr. Katherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh, and I'd like to welcome you to RWCS 2021. This will be our 14th meeting, and it's going to be February 10th through 13th. Now, I know there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, we are planning to have some part of the meeting live in Maui. We think it's going to be fantastic. We're just going to go and day by day see how things are to make the safest and, of course, the best meeting we possibly can. We think it RWCS really is the premier international academic rheumatology meeting. This year, with the uncertainty, we're also going to have a virtual component. So there'll be hybrid. There'll be live RWCS, and we'd love to have you come there. There's also going to be the hybrid online virtual version. We're calling it ERWCS. So look for more information about both of these. You can go to r-w-c-s.com and get information and register. So uh, we look forward to seeing you at RWCS 2021, February 10th to 13th in Maui. Be there, aloha. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now at hashtag ACR2020 or hashtag ACR20, the virtual meeting or convergence. I'd like to talk to you about abstract 804. And the question here was, why can't patients with RA maintain their ability to stay on their biodemard? So in other words, it's about durability. And this was a large Dutch study. And what they did was they looked at uh, patients, they removed patients who stopped their biodemards for wanting pregnancy, and they also removed patients who were in remission. And what they found were two features that decreased the ability to stay on therapy. Number one, ACPA positive. Number two, monotherapy. So this brings up whether or not guidelines such as the ULAR guidelines in RA should be changed. 
Some of the guidelines say tapering therapy, obviously not always successfully stopping therapy, but I do wonder if we should treat ACFA patients differently. So I would say, number one, when you're using an advanced therapy, at least a BioDMARD in RA, consider background therapy, even low-dose methotrexate or leflunamide, or even sulfasalazine, my opinion. Number two, if the patient's ACFA positive, leave well enough alone. So that's my take on this. I think the guidelines have to be put into perspective. Um, please go to uh, at room now and the website as well to learn lots of updates. Thank you. Hello, ACR Converge. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from my family's home office outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And today I wanted to discuss with you kind of an emerging topic that we see in rheumatology, treat to target, but not for RA, but for spondyloarthritis. So there were two interesting abstracts that I saw today that discussed this very issue, but from a feasibility standpoint in clinical practice. So treat to target strategies within the Netherlands SPA registry or SPA net were described in abstract number 0879. Patients were evaluated with an annual ASDAS score, and those with an ASDAS score greater than or equal to 2.1, high disease activity, were reevaluated at three, six, and 12 month intervals. And of course, those who had a lower disease activity or less than 2.1 ASDAS score were evaluated at six and 12 months. This data was collected also regarding therapeutic changes within six weeks of a high ASDAS score. So those numbers were also calculated. We found that 38% of patients who achieved, achieved a low ASDAS score at the first visit, 21% of patients with high disease activity also had therapeutic changes within that six-week window. But overall, the trend in patients who had high disease activity, it showed that only a few patients actually had treatment changes in total. So the follow-up scoring um, during the timeframe that was prescribed really wasn't achievable for this particular subset. So this actually suggests that treat to target while still being defined for SPA patients is really difficult to achieve in clinical practice. Another abstract that also evaluates this feasibility of treat to target for SPA in outpatient clinics was abstract number 0893 out of Spain. Now this looked at BASDI scores, C-reactive proteins, and ASDAS scores every six months for at least two years after the initiation of biologic therapy. 80% of these patients achieved either remission or low disease activity at one visit. However, only 40% remained at this level of disease control over time. So although the majority of patients actually achieved remission and low disease activity, which is what we are going for, while on biologic treatment, that percentage of patients who maintained this dropped significantly. So this study concluded that younger and male patients were actually baseline predictors of maintenance of remission and low disease activity overall. So interestingly, there is another study out of China. This is abstract number 1892, which showed that AS patients who completed self-assessments actually had lower flare rates, higher treat-to-target rates overall, and they were termed 
proactive disease managed patients. So this reinforces the importance that we need to better define treat to target for this particular patient subset. We need to be sure we're educating and advocating for our patients. And of course, we need to continue working hard to make sure that we are treating these patients early and aggressively. Stay tuned for this and more updates of ACR 2020 at roomnow.com and follow me at Twitter at UpToTate. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow coming to you on Room Now from ACR Convergence 2020. Uh, I wanted to share with you two exciting abstracts uh, today, both of which were oral presentations on the treatment of dermatomyositis. Uh, the first abstract was 0955 presented by Dr. Agarwal. Uh, this was the first placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial of IVIG for the treatment of dermatomyositis. Uh, there were 95 patients included with active disease, and these patients were currently on either a standard immunosuppression or previously failed immunosuppression. Uh, these patients were then randomized one-to-one, -one, uh, either receiving IVIG or placebo. Uh, the primary endpoint was a minimal improvement of 20 points of the total improvement score, uh, which includes muscle testing, physician and global assessment, uh, the HACC, uh, enzyme levels, and extra muscular disease activity. 79% um, of the uh, patients treated with IVIG met the primary endpoint uh, versus only 44% of placebo. Um, the secondary endpoints were either moderate or major improvement in the uh, total improvement score. Uh, and likewise, 68% uh, versus 23% met the moderate improvement and 32% versus 8% met uh, a major improvement. Um, also, these findings persisted until uh, week 40. Uh, the safety profile, the main adverse effects were headache, pyrexia, and nausea. Uh, there were three serious adverse effects compared to uh, uh, two in the placebo group, and the serious adverse effects were thrombotic events, which uh, we know are common related uh, adverse effects uh, from IVIG. Uh, the second abstract is 0958. This abstract was also presented by Dr. Agarwal. Uh, this was a phase 2B double-blinded uh, controlled randomized, randomized controlled trial of tocilizumab in the treatment of dermatomyositis. Again, patients were randomized one-to-one, -one, uh, receiving either tocilizumab or placebo. Uh, these patients had refractory uh, myositis. So either they had steroid failure or uh, failure with at least one immunosuppressive agent. Um, this patient only had 36, I mean, this study only had 36 patients uh, with the primary endpoint, again, being the total improvement score. Unfortunately, this study did not meet the primary endpoints. 26% uh, of tocilizumab patients uh, versus 29% had minimal improvements. Um, there was no moderate or major improvement either. Um, and uh, furthermore, there was no significant change in steroid uh, sparing effect. Um, there was one serious adverse effect, which was infection uh, with the tocilizumab group. Um, I would say overall, these abstracts did provide promising uh, and reassuring data on IVIG treatments, um, especially for uh, uh, you know, this very complicated and, and difficult to treat disease. But unfortunately, uh, there was no response as far as tocilizumab goes. Um, however, it's still kind of unsure uh, if we should use IVIG as a first-line therapy, as a second-line, third-line, 
Um, again, this study uh, by Dr. Agarwal, uh, they used IVIG uh, in concurrence with um, uh, immunosuppression or previously failed immunosuppression. Um, I would also like to know, uh, can IVIG be tailored to specific dermatomyositis manifestations? Um, I would like to see data on IVIG, especially related with extramuscular disease activity. As we know, dermatomyositis has, has a lot of extramuscular manifestations. Um, I know that these studies will help me decide the way I practice and treat patients with dermatomyositis. I hope this was beneficial for you. Uh, thank you for tuning in and follow Room Now for, for full coverage of ACR 2020. And please follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, I'm David Liu reporting once again for RoomNow.com from ACI 2020, the virtual conference. Wanted to tell you a little bit about a really interesting uh, abstract from the plenary, which looked at warfarin use and end-stage osteoarthritis, uh, represented by knee and hip replacements, so knee and hip osteoarthritis. It was from Tia Niogi's group uh, at, um, at Boston University. And what they did was that they had a look uh, at whether there's an association between these two things um, in a big UK primary care uh, data set. Now you, ask, you might be asking, why might there be an association? Well, in fact, vitamin K, um, a lot of, of proteins in bone and cartilage are dependent on uh, vitamin K as a cofactor. Uh, we know that some of the mutations that can occur and related to vitamin K can be associated with osteoarthritis. Um, and we know as well that vitamin K supplementation has trended towards less osteoarthritis and randomized control trials. So um, we haven't really even had that chance to examine this previously because patients who were on warfarin were on warfarin and they didn't have any other real choices for anticoagulation. Of course, now um, we have the novel um, oral anticoagulants, uh, the direct acting oral anticoagulants, and that's really given us a chance to be able to try and compare the two. Um, we've got enough data now, and that's what's been looked at in this analysis of these GP primary care, um, this, this primary care data from the United Kingdom. So looking at that, they had analyzed whether there was an association in atrial fibrillation patients between uh, warfarin and uh, knee and hip replacements and NOAX and uh, knee and hip replacements. They of course um, thought about uh, confounders and corrective flows from the out. Um, and really what they showed was that uh, there, was a, there was a strong association with warfarin and uh, osteoarthritis in comparison to the patients um, on NOAX. Uh, and that stood there even after things were adjusted for um, in the multivariable logistic regression, but also um, once it was considered about there might be practice to practice variation in the cluster analysis, looking at that. Uh, the association was stronger for um, knee replacements, so knee osteoarthritis with adjusted, adjusted odds ratio of 1.48. Um, so that's really something which um, really does provoke some questions. I should say as well that in this, the duration of warfarin um, usage led to incremental increases in risk 
both for the total of, of knee and hip replacement. Um, so really that gives us a sense of another pathway which might be really important in osteoarthritis. I think there's obviously a question regarding warfarin use in osteoarthritis in general, especially when we've got choices. Um, and if those choices are equal in certain groups, and that's, that's one thing in itself. But maybe this tells us a little bit more about osteoarthritis in general and the pathophysiological processes that underlie it. For more about osteoarthritis, uh, epi, and uh, about everything that's happened at ACI 2020, head along to roomnow.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kaye from the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and I'm here at ACR Convergence 2020, sitting in my home office, where I've listened to presentations so far all day, as well as all day yesterday. And I'm going to talk today about a very interesting presentation and a very relevant presentation that Jeff Curtis gave at the Saturday plenary session, where he presented the results of the SEAM trial, a trial looking at maintenance of remission after withdrawal of etanercept or methotrexate in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and sustained remission on combination therapy. Uh, this trial is very relevant and important in clinical practice because we're faced with the quandary of what to do about a patient whose disease is well controlled on the combination of a TNF inhibitor with methotrexate. Do we withdraw the more expensive TNF inhibitor or do we withdraw methotrexate, or do we continue them on the combination to prevent recurrent disease activity? There are two clinical trials that have been published which have addressed this question. The PRESERVE trial, which was published in 2013 in The Lancet, Joseph Smolin was the first author, which looked at maintenance reduction or withdrawal of methotrexate after treatment with methotrexate and etanercept in patients with moderate rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, this trial, uh, the PRESERVE trial, uh, took patients with moderate active rheumatoid arthritis uh, who were treated with methotrexate between 15 and 25 milligrams weekly uh, for at least eight weeks, and they were randomized or they were continued uh, in an open-label period uh, to receive etanercept 50 milligrams subcutaneously in addition to weekly methotrexate. Those that had achieved sustained low disease activity uh, with a DAS28 of 3.2 or less were then randomized into a subsequent double blind period of 52 weeks in which they were randomized one to one to one to receive either etanercept 50 milligrams plus methotrexate weekly, etanercept 25 milligrams subcutaneously weekly plus methotrexate or placebo plus methotrexate. The, results of this study showed that patients who were assigned to receive either etanercept at 50 milligrams or 25 milligrams plus methotrexate uh, did better in maintaining low disease activity than did those uh, who were treated with methotrexate alone. The next uh, paper that's relevant was the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014 of the uh, PRIZE study uh, Paul Emery was the first author on this study, and this looked at patients with early active rheumatoid arthritis who were naive both to methotrexate and biologic therapy. These patients were treated for one year in an open-label phase with etanercept 50 milligrams subcutaneously weekly and methotrexate weekly, and then those uh, who had achieved low disease activity or remission 
were randomly assigned between weeks uh, 39 and 52 uh, to receive either continued uh, um, tanercept at a dose of 25 milligrams instead of 50 milligrams weekly uh, with methotrexate, methotrexate alone or placebo uh, for 39 weeks. So in this study, uh, methotrexate and etanercept were withdrawn or etanercept was withdrawn or the dose of etanercept was reduced. And the endpoint was looking to see uh, whether patients uh, would remain in low disease activity or remission. And the study found that patients who continued to receive uh, etanercept and methotrexate uh, or a tanercept at a reduced dose and methotrexate did better in terms of continued low disease activity uh, compared to those who were withdrawn from therapy completely. The study that Jeff Curtis presented uh, looked at patients who were in uh, very good rheumatoid arthritis disease control. So this was a term that was used uh, to define uh, patients who were eligible for the study, and they had to be in this very good rheumatoid arthritis disease control for at least six months, according to the investigator. At the time of screening, they had to be in SDI remission of 3.3 or less, uh, and they had to have been treated with a tanercept for at least six months and stable doses of methotrexate, 10 to 25 milligrams weekly for at least six months with a stable dose for at least eight weeks prior to the run-in. The primary endpoint of the study was SDI remission, uh, SDI of 3.3 or less at week 48, comparing those patients who were treated with a Tanercept monotherapy to those on methotrexate monotherapy. The study design uh, took patients who are on the combination of a Tanercept and methotrexate uh, and they were randomized two to two to one uh, to either a tanercept 50 milligrams subcutaneously weekly alone with methotrexate withdrawn, methotrexate 10 to 25 milligrams weekly with a tanercept withdrawn, or a tanercept 50 milligrams subcutaneously weekly continuing with the methotrexate as combination therapy. Uh, rescue therapy was allowed uh, if patients met specific criteria and the criteria were if they had moderate to severe disease activity at any time, uh, low disease activity on at least two separate visits, uh, or if at the two consecutive visits, uh, they had uh, either uh, low disease activity uh, or moderate disease activity. So what did they find? The groups were relatively well balanced uh, and at week 48, in terms of SDI remission without disease worsening, 28.7% of those treated with methotrexate therapy, uh, monotherapy, compared to 49.5% of those on metatanercept monotherapy uh, were in SDI remission. So almost twice as many patients remained in SDI remission without disease worsening at week 48 if they were continued on a tanercept with methotrexate withdrawn, but fewer uh, remained in SDI remission if a tanercept was withdrawn and they were continued on methotrexate monotherapy. 
the proportion of patients who remain in SDI remission on the combination of etanercept and methotrexate was 52.9%, which was very close to the 49.5% of those on etanercept monotherapy. So this study showed that etanercept monotherapy uh, with methotrexate withdrawal in patients in SDI remission uh, was as effective as continuing patients on the combination. So in terms of time to disease worsening, patients tended to worsen sooner if they were on methotrexate monotherapy than if they were on either etanercept monotherapy or the combination. And recapture of disease control after rescue therapy uh, was comparable in all groups. So the study showed that similar proportions of patients maintained remission with etanercept monotherapy as with continuing the combination of methotrexate and etanercept. Uh, the patients who uh, flared, uh, they were able to recapture low disease activity or remission with rescue therapy. And in terms of safety, uh, the safety was comparable across the three groups. So this study suggests in a trial design similar to the TEMPO trial where you compare monotherapy with methotrexate, monotherapy with etanercept, or the combination of etanercept and methotrexate. In this case, withdrawing one of the two treatments in patients in remission, not low disease activity or remission, but SDI remission, that SDI remission is best maintained with withdrawal of methotrexate and continuation of etanercept, the TNF inhibitor, compared to withdrawal of the TNF inhibitor and continuation of methotrexate. So in clinical practice, this study suggests that the best approach, if you have a patient on the combination of etanercept and methotrexate, is to withdraw the methotrexate and continue the biologic agent to maintain excellent disease control. Now, uh, the remaining question is how can you predict who will best maintain remission or who might lose remission uh, if you withdraw one or the other of the two drugs? Uh, so genetic or other biomarker predictors of remission maintenance uh, will be appropriate to study in the future. Uh, this presentation was excellent. Jeff is to be commended uh, not only on the study, but also on his typical excellent presentation style. Uh, I look forward to seeing more uh, studies, not only Jeff's, but others uh, at ACR Convergence. And I look forward to seeing you all again on Room Now. So for further information about this and other studies, go to the Room Now website and I'll see you again soon. I'm Jonathan Kay. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Dine from Baltimore, Maryland, checking in with Room Now at ACR Convergence Day 2. Uh, I wanted to chat today about some um, interesting studies from the poster session this morning in regards to rheumatoid arthritis. I'm going to talk about Abstract 0760, which is a study out of the UK by Dr. DiMatteo. And in this study, they looked at x-ray bone erosions in patients with anti-CCP positivity 
but without any, with musculoskeletal symptoms, but without any clinical synovitis. How often is it? What do you do about it? Does it predict the risk of development of inflammatory arthritis? So this has been, I think, a, a, a topic of conversation during the meetings uh, throughout as to subclinical arthritis or uh, positive antibodies with without evidence of arthritis. How do you manage these patients? Do you start them on early treatment? Kind of the clinical um, holy grail of how do we prevent patients from, from getting worsening disease at the very early stages. So in this study, they looked at 418 patients that were evaluated for musculoskeletal symptoms, arthralgias, with positive CCP antibodies. All patients involved in the study had a baseline radiographs of their hands and their feet, and they included patients with bone erosions that were measured by musculoskeletal radiologists and confirmed by second independent musculoskeletal radiologists. What they found were in this CCP positive arthralgia group, bone erosions were quite rare. So 17 out of the 418 patients, or 4.1% had bone erosions. Where are these erosions likely to be found? Most frequently in the feet. So remembering to not only look at the x-rays of the hands, also look at the x-rays of the feet, particularly the standing radiographs. In these 4% of patients, did they go on to develop inflammatory arthritis? In the study that they show the data, it showed not, not many, um, not a significant difference, at least compared to the patients without bone erosions. So uh, in total, there were 123 of the almost 400 patients that progressed to inflammatory arthritis. That's a total value of 31% will progress to inflammatory arthritis. And specifically the patients that start with bone erosions, 41% versus 31% without bone bony erosions. This is an odd ratio, odds ratio of 1.6, but it's not significantly significant. That odds ratio crosses one. The p-value is 0.37. And when you do the multivariable analysis, the odds ratio comes out to exactly 1.0. So um, what, what about patients that had repeat x-rays? They only had 73 patients with repeat x-rays that showed for progressing to develop bony erosions. How do you interpret this? How do you use this for clinical study, uh, for clinical use? I say that, you know, I think overall it says that in this group of patients, bony erosions were pretty uncommon overall in patients without clinical synovitis. So that's pretty reassuring before you get the imaging that if they don't have synovitis on exam, they've never had synovitis, they're probably unlikely to have bony erosions. In seropositive patients, you know, it looked like 4% from this study. Is it, um, is it not predictive, as they say, for inflammatory arthritis? I think my takeaway from this study is that um, patients do progress to inflammatory arthritis. And um, again, in relatively short interval, you know, we see that nearly half of them did progress to inflammatory arthritis when they had CCP positivity. And uh, as to the finding that bony erosions do not progress, I think it's hard to say because there are only 17 patients that have bony erosion. So we're talking about a, a small sample size. And I wonder if we had more patients that showed early erosive disease, uh, if, they, if they might have shown a trend that they do not do as well. 
I, I think it's interesting to correlate this with the abstract that we talked about yesterday, 0481, which talked about the role of imaging for subclinical synovitis. I think these are patients that I might do an ultrasound or do MRI to see if they have some sin, sub, subclinical synovitis to help us guide that next step in therapy. Uh, overall, though, I think it's very interesting. I think it'll be very interesting uh, as we continue to get lots of more studies throughout the ACR convergence, looking at these patients that have high concerns for development of inflammatory arthritis with positive serologies, um, but do not have inflammatory arthritis. What do we do? Who do we aggressively treat early without overtreatment? So lots of information throughout this convergence, lots of information throughout on, on room now. I'm Eric Diana. Um, give me a round for, for the meeting and looking forward to talking with you further. Thank you very much. Take care.